Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Thank you for coming. Today is Reformation Day Sunday. And, um, you know, while I know we're not so much of a liturgical church, by that I mean we're not a kind of church that celebrates all the holy days throughout the year and marks our calendar based on this particular saint and all those types of things, for whatever reason, Reformation Day has been really important to me. And uh, if, if you've been here for the past few years, you might remember that on certain occasions I've been known to dress up as Martin Luther and hand out the 95 Theses. Well, I'm sorry to say I could not find my costume. And I was so disappointed about that because this would have been the perfect opportunity for it, but I can't find it. And Sarah's gone. She's with the kids with uh, Pastor Reed and Bonnie for the weekend, and I couldn't even ask her, where's the costume? So I'm sorry you're missing out on that. So what can I say? But I will have copies of the 95 Theses in the back uh, if you'd like to take one. We will always, always, I always offer that. So that'll be there in case you're not familiar with them. As Pastor Heller mentioned, this is a special Sunday because... It marks uh, the Sunday before October 31st, and that's the date in which Martin Luther had posted these famous 95 Theses on the door at the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and when he did that, if you're not familiar with what those are about, uh, he, was, uh, he was attacking a, a certain uh, practice that was going on in his day uh, in which um, indulgences were being sold, were being sold. And... Um, he was, he was trying to uh, argue against them. I'll explain what those were in just a little bit. And I want to give you a, a history lesson before we get into this text. But uh, I do want to say before we get started, if you are following along with your phones, you can uh, do so the way uh, in which we did, I believe, back last fall when I was preaching on uh, how God changes us. I said if you have, happen to have the Logos Bible app, which is a little blue app, uh, you can s- search under Logos Bible if you have an iPhone or an Android or whatever. And as these verses appear on the screen, you'll be able to follow along and they'll pop up on your device as you're following along. So keep that in mind if you want to follow along. It should pop up there for you. And we're going to be in Romans 3, of course, as Pastor just read. Now, about these, these 95 theses, because I think it's good for us to explain as we're talking about Reformation Day. Of course, you know this, this man here, Martin Luther, was, is on your bulletin this morning. That's who I have up on the screen. This took place in 1517. It's kind of cool because, if you think about it, in two years we'll be at the 500th anniversary of this event. So I'm gonna, I don't know what I'm going to do for that. We'll just have to... Make something big. I'll have to get a new costume, I guess, when uh, 2017 rolls along. But uh, Leo X was Pope at the time. And you've got to understand, uh, at the time Martin Luther was alive, there was no uh, Protestant church. Okay? There were no denominations uh, that uh, differed from one another. There was one church. There was the Catholic church. And that was every church. And, and that was the world he grew up in. So he grew up following the Pope he grew up believing certain Catholic teachings, and it wasn't until later that he would start to examine the Bible a little bit more closely to kind of see what it said about different things versus what he had always been taught. But at this time, the Pope was Leo X, and he was working on making improvements to St. Peter's Basilica, which is located in Rome. If you've never seen it before, here are some pictures. And I think that one in black and white is a drawing of what it might have looked like at the time of Martin Luther. It had fallen into disrepair, and he wanted to be able to make it a grand building. And so he had to enlist uh, famous architects and, and artists like Albrecht Dürer and Raphael and Michelangelo and all the other Ninja Turtles that you know of, okay? Uh, they, they all worked on it together, all right? I assume with the colored headbands and things. No, uh, these artists work on this project, and, and it cost a great deal of money. 
And, and so why does that matter for today? Well, I'll explain to you here. Uh, the, the Pope needed to find a way to raise this money to afford all these wonderful artists. And, and so uh, he devised a plan. Actually, it was in part with the help of the Archbishop of Mainz, Germany. His name was Albert. And uh, he had a, a problem of his own. And uh, through the Pope's problem and his own problem, they, they uh, were able to work out a deal. The problem for Albert was he already held two positions as bishops, and it was against church law for him to hold a third, but he wanted this third position. And uh, the Pope and, and him kind of worked out this deal that if he was able to find a way to raise money to build this, then he could have this, this uh, third church position. And so Albert agreed to this deal, and his plan was to enlist the help of a monk named Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. And what Tetzel was going to do was sell these slips of, in paper, these slips of paper called indulgences. And on these slips of paper it said that if you purchase one of these, you could be forgiven of a great many sins and self, set yourself free from purgatory. Not only that, you could set your loved ones free from purgatory. Now, if you're not familiar with what purgatory is, and you're like, I've never heard of that, I've never read that in the Bible, that's okay because it's not there. There is no such thing taught in the Bible, but it's part of traditional Catholic teaching that once a person dies, more often than not, you're not brought to heaven or hell. You're in this middle place where you have to pay for your sins for a while before you can be allowed into heaven. Uh, but again, that's not something that the Bible teaches. It's part of Catholic tradition. Anyway, that's important for you to know because he was saying to all these people who believed in purgatory at the time that if you buy these slips of paper, you don't have to confess. You don't have to be a good person. You can just buy this paper and you can be set free from purgatory. No need to go to confession anymore. Uh, you can have the forgiveness of sins just for a cost. And it was great for him because they could raise money for the St. Peter's Basilica, which we talked about. And it would also be great for them because they'd figure, well, uh, I could have forgiveness of sins. And at the time, people didn't have the Bible in their own language. It was being read to them in Latin. They didn't understand what it said. They couldn't read it for themselves. So they were entirely trusting on what the priests told them. So Martin Luther found out about this practice. And he said, that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's like you're giving somebody a a get-out-of-jail-free card. Okay? Get out of purgatory free. That's not what the, the Bible says at all. And when you do that, you're going to take away people's uh, need to trust in Christ for their forgiveness and for their salvation. And, uh, and they won't come anymore and they'll just have this false hope. So that is the situation that created the 95 Theses. When he went to nail these on the door at the church in Wittenberg... He was making 95 points that were interconnected. It's not like they were 95 different points about different things. It was one topic, and it was about the sale of indulgences, and they were arguments that built upon each other. And again, if you'd like to read these, I have an English paraphrase of them that I can give to you afterwards, and you can go through and see. Now, you'll notice as he, as he wrote the 95 Theses, he still believed in things like purgatory. He had not yet come away from the Bible and realized that was not something he found there. It was an evolution of, of thought for him. But at least at this point, he realized that, wait a second, salvation can't be bought. Forgiveness of sins can't be purchased with money. And this is a dreadful heresy. And so he posted this on the door to inspire public debate about it. That's what you would do. You'd post ideas in a public place, in a public square, so that there could be a debate. And uh, unfortunately, he never got that debate he was looking for. The Pope kind of dismissed him, and this would set him on a path 
to be at odds with the church from that point forward. Uh, But why do I bring all this up? Why does this matter for today? Why get into all this stuff about a guy who lived hundreds of years ago? Well, for one thing, for one thing, uh, we are a Protestant church. We owe our existence to Martin Luther and others like him. If it weren't for him and other reformers that came after him, we would not be here. We would still be a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you might say, one giant church and, and the teachings related therein. And second of all, uh, the reason why this is relevant today is the question of how is a person made right with God is still a very important and relevant question in everyday conversation, in our interactions with people in the world today. You ask different people on the street, how is it that you are made right with God? How can you know that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And you will get a wide variety of of answers. And people will say to you, I think I'm, I'm generally a good person. Uh, I think I can earn my way to heaven. God won't deny all the things that I've done for him. And I have a clip here for for a second. Hopefully we'll be able to see this and hear this. Um, This is a a brief clip to illustrate this very point. And it's done by a man named uh, Ray Comfort. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He has a show called Way of the Master. He's a very bold and uh, a wonderful uh, street evangelist. But just listen to this interview that he does with somebody about uh, their, their state and where they think they're going. I think that there is an afterlife for those who believe. And what about for those who don't believe? Um, in my religion, I feel that there's, uh, I'm taught that there is a, uh, a judgment day for those that don't believe. So I guess they wait around until judgment day. Those who do believe go to, directly to heaven. So all, you have to do, all you have to do is believe? Uh, no, you have to believe. And I think that you have to, uh, you, you have to l- try your best to live within the guidelines that, that, uh, that God showed us through his son, Jesus Christ. So you look at what Jesus did and you imitate him? To the best of your ability. So how are you doing in life? I'm okay. Trying to Im- make it there. I'm imitating not Jesus? I'm trying, but I'm not perfect. Nobody is but him and God. So, so what's going to happen to you on Judgment Day? Uh, hopefully I've done a lot more good things in my life than bad things. Do you think you're basically a good person? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay, so that's the general belief that's out there, okay? And the heart of this all is the gospel, right? How is one made right with God? Is it that we buy our salvation? Can we buy a slip of paper and then we know for sure we're going to be in heaven? Is it that uh, when we get to the end of our life, God's going to look at our good works and say, you know what, I think he was a, a pretty decent guy or girl. I think I'll let them into heaven as well. These are kinds of questions and opinions that exist today. That's why this topic is relevant. And so it really comes down to the gospel. And that's what Martin Luther was doing when he nailed these 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg. He was defining and clarifying what the gospel is. How is a person made right with God? Well, we're going to get into Romans 3 today. And uh, we're going to answer that question. The Bible's going to tell us very plainly. So, so hopefully you still have that open in your Bibles. Let's look at it. Let's look at the context, first of all, in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. And it says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands 
No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, it all starts with our understanding of who we are as people, our view of, uh, of humanity. Um, religious and irreligious are covered in this passage. Before coming to Christ, all of us are sinful in the eyes of God. That means that none of us are essentially good or righteous before God. And you see, when we say that we are essentially good, we're often implicitly comparing ourselves to other people. We often think to ourselves, well, am I a good person? Well, I'm not as bad as that person. Usually people say, well, I'm not a murderer. I've never killed anybody. Do you see what we're doing? We're comparing ourselves to other people and not to God. And of course, when we compare ourselves to, to God, then it becomes an entirely different story. And of course, the comparison that God makes is not between us and other people, but because, between us and himself. And Romans 3.23 says this very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. God's glorious personality, his characteristic, his status as being holy, okay? And we fall short of that all of the time. None of us measure up. And you know, if you talk to people on the street about heaven, you often hear all kinds of things, uh, like this person just said, I think God won't disregard all the things that I've done for him in life. Or, um, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm one of God's ch- uh, children. God loves his children. That's what people like to think. But listen to some of the ways that we are described, okay, in the book of Romans. Humanity, according to Romans, says this. We are under God's wrath, verse 5. We, are, we have sinned. Chapter 2, verse 12. We will all be judged to 12 again. We are lawbreakers, condemned, under sin, unrighteous, worthless, and finally accountable before God. That's the true nature of the human heart. We're not basically good. We are lawbreakers. But what's even worse is that we have no way to be made righteous on our own. Back in Martin Luther's day, people believed that they could earn salvation with money, that they could buy their way into heaven. And today, even though the Catholic Church no longer sells indulgences, many people believe that they can merit salvation, either through praying the rosary or Hail Marys or through confession or good works in general. And just to show you this, I've taken this statement away from the Second Vatican Council just to give you an illustration of this very point. It says, the bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of preaching the gospel to every creature, so that all men may attain salvation through what? Faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Now, whether or not people are actually taught that straight from this quote or not, people often leave with that kind of impression. And you might say, well, Pastor David, it's really it's a cheap shot for you to be taking just against Catholics in general, but... I I can tell you from experience, that is the same way I grew up believing it as as well. And I didn't grow up Catholic. So it's not limited to somebody who is in the Catholic Church. A lot of people grow up in a mainline church or just in churches in general in the United States thinking this very same way. And here's an illustration that shows my view of what I thought um, was going to get me to heaven. Of course, this is taken from Billy Graham's uh, famous tract. It's called Steps to Peace with God. And it's actually one of the key ways God used to bring about my salvation. I had grown up going to church faithfully. My parents had brought me faithfully to church um, every single week growing up. But yet, inwardly, in my heart, I was not converted. 
And, and that was my own um, just rebellion of heart. And here I thought that good works and religion and all those things that I had been doing for God in my own heart were going to get me there. And it wasn't until Sarah, uh, when we were getting to know each other better at the end of high school, first witnessed to me, which caused me to go back to the pastor of my church at the time, um, and he presented me with this track, The Steps to Peace with God, uh, from Billy Graham, that I saw this picture. And for whatever reason, this picture was what really woke me up. Um, God used it, and, and God used the Jesus video, God used Sarah's conversations with me, all these different things to bring about my right understanding, to enlighten my heart, to cause the Holy Spirit, to cause me to understand. And it was this, uh, I, I believe, when I was sitting at home on July 4th of all days, uh, 1999, that I realized, wait a second, these are the things I'm trusting to bring salvation. And then the page that follows this, which I don't have on screen for you, shows a cross in the very next picture that bridges that gap, the only way that we can be brought near to God. That's what I finally understood. I say all that because I wasn't Catholic, but yet I grew up with this very same understanding, and many people are often uh, confused in the exact same way. So we aren't good people by nature. We're not able to bridge that gap on our, on our own. Um, we think that if we were to stand before God, we would be able to give an account for our lives, and that would be enough. And I want to show you a continuation of the clip that I showed you before as Ray Comfort continues on in conversation with this man, asking if he really does think he's righteousness, uh, righteous enough to merit salvation. About that. Sure. Let's so go if back. you're a good person, you won't mind me asking you a few questions about that. Sure. How many lies are you told in your life? Oh, plenty. <laughs> what do you call someone who tells lies? Uh, well, there's different degrees of lies, I think. Uh, there's there's uh, an outright uh, what you're not supposed to do. And, so what do you call someone who tells lies? Uh, a liar. It's hard to say, isn't it, about yourself. <laughs> have you ever stolen anything in your whole life? I have. I have. What do you call someone who steals things? Uh, a thief. Huh? A thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? I have. I have. Now, God lavished his goodness upon you, gave you eyesight to enjoy his creation. He gave me a lot of things. And he lavished his goodness on you. So, and you've used his name as a cuss word, which is called blasphemy. I have. So that's very serious in his sight. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in the heart. Have you ever done that? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> you say that again. <laughs> it's a tough one. So, Paul, listen to this. Yeah. By your own admission, you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterate heart. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I love the way in which he shares the gospel with individuals. And if you were to watch The Way of the Master, other episodes of it, you'll find he shares it in much the same way, taking them through the Ten Commandments to say, oh, you think you really are a good person? Well, let's look at them. Just take a few and realize that we're not. And then he usually concludes it uh, by by saying that, uh, no, if if you were to stand before God on the basis of what you've just told me, would you be counted as righteous? And then the person is, is usually forced to say, well, no, I guess, I guess not. That, that brings us to a key term for today, which I have up on the screen. That's the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Um, how can you tell that it's important in this particular passage? And this will be helpful if you have your Bible open as well, if you're not just relying upon the words that I have on screen. Because if you look in the passage that we just read, the term the righteousness of God, or just that word righteousness, appears several different times in the passage we're in today. And in fact, the whole term righteousness of God appears eight times in 
the book of Romans. Of those eight times, aside from uh, 2 Corinthians, it's not in any other book that Paul has written. So you can tell it's a very important term for this particular book if it appears nowhere else except for 2 Corinthians. Thirdly, of these eight times it appears, four of them are found in this passage that we read this morning. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. If you just look down, you'll see righteousness appear four times. And it'll either say righteousness of God or his righteousness. Same thing, same, same phrase in Greek. Okay, So if we're seeing that, usually I tell the teens in YF that if you see a phrase that's repeated a bunch of times, that's a good indication that that's part of the theme, or at least a step in the right direction. And you know, this term, righteousness of God, can sound a little bit scary to us when we, when we read it. Okay, If we think about all that we just saw in that video clip about how uh, when it comes to God's standards and, and how we try to measure up, that term righteousness of God, it just seems like an unattainable uh, standard. How could we ever possibly live up to the righteousness of God? And you know what? Martin Luther struggled with this phrase as well. He came to this very book of the Bible and said, you know what? This phrase had terrified me. He hated God because of it. And I want to show you on the screen his testimony about this. Because in it, it says the righteousness of God has been manifested. That read totally different to him before he was converted. Listen to this, and I'll try and put it up on screen and read it to you as well. He said, I had been captivated with a remarkable enthusiasm for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was a simple saying, originally found in chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated the word, the righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand that is a formal act of justice by which God is righteous and punishes the sinners and the unrighteous. Though I had lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I did not love, indeed, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners." Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Through his faith, righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. This, then, is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. And here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, There a totally other face of all Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me as a gateway to heaven. That's pretty amazing. It's through this term in Romans that the righteousness of God becomes something sweet to Martin Luther. And indeed, Luther's words provide the key to us 
in understanding this wonderful passage this morning. Whereas before we attempted to earn heaven and become righteous through the law, that is, through doing good works, we ultimately failed. For none of us lives up to this perfect standard, and none of us are righteous. But now, the righteousness of God, and that is, as Martin Luther understood it, and I believe rightly, a way for us to be declared righteous by God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. And that means since Jesus has come into the world, God has revealed the way in which we can be made right with Him. And you know, it's not by us being more religious. Some people get to a place in their lives where they look at their past, they realize they haven't made the best choices, and suddenly they, de- they decide they need to get religion in their life. Or, or they have kids, and they say, you know what, I haven't been going to the church, but I, I feel like this is something good for my kids to hear. I feel like this is my time where I really should start buckling down and, and getting right, doing more things, doing more good deeds, trying to be more religious. But no, verse 21 says that we are made right apart from the law. It can't be obtained by doing more good things. Rather, the text says, the, the law and the prophets bore witness to it. That means that even though Jesus was born in only about 4 or 5 B.C., God has promised His coming and spoken of His saving work in the Scriptures years before. Here's some samples of that, and I could go on and on. I'll just give you a few. Isaiah 46, 13 In this God promised, and again, this was years, hundreds of years before, I will bring my righteousness near. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is a prediction by Balaam the prophet about Christ. Next, Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. In other words, this is a reference to the righteousness that's going to become ours, which we didn't possess before. And finally, in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through, that's Jesus, through our, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. And verse 12, sorry, not 4, 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. You see, it's speaking of a transfer taking place, him taking on our sins and us taking that righteousness that was not native to us. So even though we cannot be made right with God just by obeying the Ten Commandments and other commands of Scripture, it was in these very commands and in the entire Old Testament that Christ was revealed. And you know what? The future that they spoke of is now. That's what's exciting. That's it's exciting about it. It's talking about all this being revealed at a certain time. And you know what? We are now living in that time. You know, all, the, all this time before, before Christ came, people were waiting for hundreds and thousands of years. They were waiting for the future to be here. And, and we often lose sight of the fact of how amazing it is that the future is now. Um, on Wednesday, uh, people were saying the future is now. Anybody know what was special about Wednesday, uh, October 21st this week? Back to the Future Day. Anybody say that? Okay, if there's some other holiday and you're answering that, forgive me that I know the nerdy version anyway. Uh, More than that. But yes, okay, Back to the Future. Have you ever seen Back to the Future Part 2? Marty McFly, it's Michael J. Fox, and Christopher Lloyd, who's playing the doc, they go to the future, and they travel to the date of 
October 21st, 2015. So everybody had been waiting for this date, and Wednesday it finally came, and people were saying, hey, the future's here, you know? This, and they were comparing what, what, what is the future actually like versus what they predicted it to be. And some things they got right, they're flat-screen TVs that people have on their walls, they can do video conferencing, that stuff wasn't around, but they predicted it. We don't have hoverboards, I'm sorry. I wish we did, we don't have hoverboards. We don't have self-lacing shoes yet. But uh, some things came true. So people were all excited to say, hey, the future is now. Well, I'm telling you, according to scriptures, the future is now. According to what Christ has done on the cross, it's already happened, and now we live in benefit of it. All these things were promised. Prophets lived and died waiting for this to happen, and now we live in this particular time. How can we possess this righteousness that was promised? These verses tell us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ through, for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If we shift forward a little bit, looking at verses 24 and 25, we'll see three things appear. Okay? If it's not by our works and not by our righteousness, then how can we get this righteousness that is alien to us to be imparted on our behalf? For God to view us as righteous, even though we're not. Three ways, it says. It is by His grace. You see that underlined there? in Christ Jesus, and to be received by faith. And so, it is by grace through faith in Christ. And so it's not just a clever title that you see on the front of your bulletin this morning. actually came from somewhere. But these three phrases are really important because they're often associated with the Reformation, which Martin Luther helped to start. And uh, they're known in uh, different, different ways, but these are the three key ones, by grace alone, through faith alone, and through Christ alone. But also added to this sometimes is Scripture alone and glory to God alone. And each of these has a Latin counterpart. Okay, so for Scripture alone, you have sola scriptura, or by grace alone, uh, sola gratia, or sola fide, for uh, faith alone. Okay, so these are known together as the three or sometimes five solas. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone. And these things are really important because they were the things that Martin Luther was ultimately standing for when he said, no, salvation is not by buying your salvation or by confession or any of those things. These were the things he stood for. He didn't coin the phrases. They didn't come about until much later, but they perfectly summarize what it is that he taught. So let's just examine these things in Scripture as we find them in the minutes that we have left. First, grace alone, found in verse 24. We're justified by his grace as a gift. What does that mean? It means that salvation is something that we've not earned means it's something God chooses to give us, and he's under no legal obligation to do so. That's why it's called a gift. Okay? Think of it this way, using this illustration. If, let's say the person who's sitting next to you, to your right this morning in uh, the pew, brought you a giant gift this morning, and you'd say, well, that's really nice of you. Thank you so much. A giant one wrapped in nice, shiny wrapping paper with a bow on top, and they gave it to you. You'd say, thank you. Okay? Now, let's imagine, let's erase that. Uh, future, okay, and let's uh, say that never happened, and then you come in today, again, alternate future here, alternate reality, and they didn't bring a gift to you, what would you do? You wouldn't turn to them and say, well, where's my gift? Jerk, you know, and you, you wouldn't say that, okay, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be mean about it, you, would, you wouldn't expect it, it's not something that somebody was obligated to give to you, okay, it was entirely of their own will, 
Um, but if they did, you'd say thank you. That's, that's very nice. That's what salvation is to us. Something that we can't demand from God. We can't say, why didn't you give this to me? It's not earned. Another illustration that we could use is uh, consider a court scene. And it's fitting because Romans 3 has a lot of legal language in it, justified righteousness, that sort of thing. Let's say you're guilty of several crimes, which of course we all are before God. And the evidence is against you and you are to be thrown into the prison for life. And just then at the last moment, the governor enters the courtroom and issues a pardon on your behalf. You've not done anything to earn it. You don't deserve it, but you're pardoned. That is how it is with salvation. We have done nothing to earn it. This matters for us today, for those who say they're good enough, because we're not. We're justified. That is, God gives us this legal status of righteousness, even though we don't deserve it, by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. We read this at the beginning of our service. Second is faith alone. And it says right there, to be received by faith. The real question is, if salvation and forgiveness is possible, how do we receive it? How can we take hold of it? The answer is, by faith. Um, the beauty in this gift is that it can be received by a child. It's not something complex. We don't have to understand everything there is to know about Scripture to receive Christ. It's something that even a child can understand. But we can receive it by faith because there's nothing else that we can bring to the table. John 6.47 says this. Whoever believes has eternal life. Says it very simply. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And finally, the last crucial piece of this puzzle is Christ alone. And it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that is to say that we don't have faith in just faith itself, but that faith is in a specific person, and that is Christ. That stands in contrast to the popular belief today that there are many different paths to heaven, that you can be a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist, and all are just different paths up the same mountain, that all of them lead to God. Well, they don't. Against this, Romans 3.24 says that redemption is only found in Christ Jesus. And we know in other passages of Scripture, many of of which I'm sure you've you've memorized, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Romans says that Christ was put forth as a propitiation in this text that we have open today. And what does that word mean? It's often a big word. We don't understand what it means. We never use it in a conversation. It means this. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God through his substitutionary death on the cross, and he brought about our peace between ourselves and God. Here's a cool way to remember that. Think of it this way. Propiciation. Okay? If you think of it that way, Jesus brought us peace between us and God. You've got to stretch the word a little bit, but if it helps you remember, there you go. Okay, propitiation, propice, it's for peace, brought peace between us and God. And that's how it happened, through Christ alone, by his grace alone, through faith alone. Let me just finish out this video clip that I showed you in the beginning, and here Ray's going to witness and share the gospel with this individual. Well, let me share with you what the Bible says, and then I'll come back to you and get your thoughts on it. Okay. The Bible says there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. We're like a guilty criminal standing before a, a good judge, we're guilty, there's nothing we can do to exonerate ourselves. But we're told that the judge is rich in mercy, the judge of the universe. And God, because he's rich in mercy, sent his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. Now, you know that. 
believe that. Yeah. Okay, you believe that. But do you realize that it was a legal transaction that took place 2,000 years ago? You violated God's law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Mm -hmm. Jesus came and paid your fine in his life's blood. On that cross, he cried out, it is finished. The debt has been paid. So because of the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God can now legally dismiss your case. Paul, you can walk out of the courtroom. Your sins can be completely forgiven because 2,000 years ago, someone paid your fine. But what you have to do is let go of your own goodness. Don't trust in your goodness because you haven't got any. Just transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. Repent. That's more than confessing your sins to God or a priest. It's turning from them. And trust in Jesus like you trust a brain surgeon or a parachute. You entirely trust yourself to the Savior. The minute you do that, God will forgive every sin you've ever committed, and he'll give you the gift of everlasting life. That's the good news. That's the good news that we have today. First of all, do you believe it? If you're here this morning and you've never made that step of faith, I was once in your shoes. Talk to me. Talk to somebody who's here. And don't leave this place without trusting in Christ. And if you are saved... Remember these things. Maybe these three things can help you remember the gospel as you're trying to present it to somebody. And you're trying to remember, what exactly am I trying to convey? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful truth. Thank you for the legacy of the gospel that is presented to us that we remember today. God, may we not just look back on history grateful for people like Martin Luther and others who came after him. But may we be a part of that legacy. May we ever stand for the truth of the gospel and proclaim it clearly to those that we know. May you be pleased with our worship this morning. May we be faithful witnesses for your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.